0: The last week of May 2020 is when homicide starts to take off in the United States like a rocket. Um, you pick your measure, it's there in the data. And there's a very simple reason for that, which is the d- murder of George Floyd and ensuing protests and riots. In every data set that I've looked at, that is the worst week for burglary on record, where burglary means uh, breaking into something and stealing stuff, so like people smashing windows and stealing stuff out of stores. That means a short run drain on public safety capacity because like all cops could do Was respond to mass rioting but it also means a long-run reduction in policing's capacity because you know there was a nationwide movement to say we want to get rid of the police
1: welcome to the new flesh podcast the podcast you deserve my name is jonathan astro with me is ricky Allpike. ricky uh do, do you remember a song uh i won't swear i don't want to swear
2: it says f the police i i i'm aware of that song yeah do you
1: is there, do you believe that that's what we should be doing? <laughs> not actually, but in not not you
2: know getting rid of them and all that. No, I I don't think we should get rid of them. I, okay. I, I like your idea, John. Actually, where you uh, well, it's like a net Netflix subscription. The subscription yeah, service. where you subscribe yeah. to the police, and for, for a monthly fee, you can call triple zero or you know nine one one in the US, and the cops can come over when you need them. Uh, and if you if you don't, if you don't want they, they don't they don't they don't come. Yeah, I'm down with that. Uh, that that's, that's, I, I don't, well,
1: look, maybe we'll put it to our guest today, uh, Charles Vane Lehman. He's all about uh, crime and policing uh, and a number of other uh, subjects that we, that I, I can't wait to dive into with him.
2: Charles Vane Lehman is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute working primarily on the policing and public safety initiative and a contributing editor of City Journal. He also hosts the podcast Institutionalised with co-host Aaron Sabarium institutions in the US. Uh, previously he's been a staff writer for the Washington Free Beacon and has also contributed pieces for the Wall Street Journal, National Review Online uh, and Tablet among other publications. Charles,
0: welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, it's great to be here.
2: So Charles, We will get into crime and
1: policing uh, Material matters, but eventually But I have a question I can only ask a fellow Podcaster in the, shall we say Free thinker space Uh, My wife has had Various guests, sort of normie Friends come round uh, to our house Recently, and I think I've frightened Every single one of them with talk about Lockdowns, transgenderism And reparations Uh, You, like us, work in, in kind of a Woke ER triage uh, what what are your interactions like with normal people? Because mine 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 are not great. I don't talk to normal people.
0: <laughs> no, no. Um, I mean, I do, uh, and mostly I talk about other things. You know, I, uh, I mean, my 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 wife works professionally as a teacher. Uh, obviously, you know, we have we have uh, friends that we know from college, friends that we know um, sort of from my professional life who I discuss politics with. But you know, I, I, honestly uh what i would say is my you know my, my my wife is a fairly apolitical person we sort of agree on the essential stuff but she doesn't care about the issues of the day that much she's not worried
1: about the, the transgender stuff at we spa or, or. no
0: not 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 <laughs> not actively you know i think she's ambiently aware of it she listens to red scale she's ambiently aware of it uh but but you know i think i think uh there are a lot of a lot of people i, know I just don't talk about politics with and that's okay uh, that, that that that's sort of the ideal, right? It's like, it's, uh, it would be nice if we were allowed to avoid having opinions. And so I do when I can. right? My, my, my feeling is I do politics all day for my job and I'd rather leave my job at my mm. job when I go home. Good yes. advice.
2: Well, it feels right to perhaps introduce your podcast here, which is seriously good. It's called Institutionalized. Can you tell us about the show and its genesis and, and, and what you're trying to accomplish with it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the hook of the show, the sort of, basic concept is there are lots of weird institutions uh i don't know about how many of your listeners are uh americans versus not um although with the next hopefully next week's episode is about uh about england um next week from when we're recording this uh but it's you know it's 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 pegged to the concept of institutions but we really just wanted to do an interview show smart people that we know bring them on ask them questions that we're interested in uh, it's myself, my friend Aaron Sbariham, who's done a bunch of reporting on woke craziness on various college campuses, uh, woke consultancies, that sort of thing. So he's very attuned to issues that I think your your listeners are interested in. But we're we're all over the map. The last episode was about genetics. We've done stuff about race. We've done stuff about gender. We've done stuff about my favorite episode was about prisons and how they work. And Great episode. Um, yeah. So you know, it's it's uh, there's a little something for everyone.
1: Well, I've found that hearing ideas from these big thinkers has, has changed me in some ways. And has doing the podcast affected your thinking or has had any surprising impact on you or your work?
0: You know, I think mostly uh, journalism is a practice, interviewing people is a practice, and I've gotten better at drawing out feeling less awkward engaging with people's ideas you know which is which is something i've done in a variety of formats but when you move to a new format like a podcast it's you have to relearn the skills from scratch um so i think the conversations that we're having now are better than the conversations that we were first recording six seven eight nine months ago and that's you know, that that that's effective for uh for teaching us teaching me new things you know i i i try very hard to avoid getting stuck in stuck in the rut of sort of the the topics that er and i are most interested in whether you wokeness whatever um which is why i love when we get to do episodes about like genetics which is you know last week with the ZoomCon. uh we learn all sorts of new stuff um so you know i nothing really sticks out to me but i think i you know, being being an effective commentator, thinker, etc., means means having a diversity of inputs, and so it's allowed me to expand that that set of inputs even more.
2: Have you had any uh, favorite guests or topics so far?
0: Oh gosh, um, I mentioned, and this is really one of our less listened to episodes that I I, I like to plug it. Um, David Scarbeck, who's a, a political scientist at Brown University, came on and talked about prison gangs, um, and David's research is about the way in which prison gangs create order in prisons, how there's sort of an alternative when your prisons get big and disorderly enough prison gangs emerge to provide the good of order. Um, which is a, a, a fascinating, is, is a fascinating episode. I thought he was great. I thought he was very interesting. So I plugged that one a lot. Um, we just did one with a guy at George Mason University of law Professor. His name is David Bernstein, who has a book out either now or soon called classified uh, which is about the American system of racial classification, where it came from, why it doesn't make any sense. I thought he was great too. So those are the two very good episodes. I
1: can I can verify this. They are both very good episodes, and I learned something from both of them. So uh, before we get into crime and complete policing, look, we have to address the elephant in the room. I need to get your perspective on woke call it left modernism successor ideology we don't need to you know i think most of us know it when we see it uh my concern is that some people are on the common sense side shall we say end up becoming full-time culture warriors uh, and perhaps ditching whatever it is they did before in favor of owning the libs uh is this something you've seen and, and do you ever worry about being consumed by the game so to speak
0: oh yeah absolutely and you know my part of the goal of the podcast and part of the goal of the stuff that I've written've written city journal I've written elsewhere is I'm interested in this as a as a sociological phenomenon um what's what's interesting to me is this sort of uh, the peculiarities of high status individuals becoming fixated on uh, their own wealth their own privilege what's the set of incentives there why the collective fixation on race where does that come from uh I so it was you know I'm I think it's really interesting as a, as a sociological or political or historical phenomenon. And it clearly impacts politics in the United States around the world. So it matters. Um, But I do think that you're right. That people can get like people who should have come at it from not this like detached academic perspective or this interest, this, this interested perspective, people who should have come at it, like looking only for the most insane effects of it and becoming outraged at those. Like they just can't reason effectively about the problem. They aren't, Position to go, oh, I understand what's going on here. Um, I think a lot about uh, John McWhorter, who's uh, a writer who I respect, I think, who I respect, put out this book called Work Racism recently that was, you know, he sort of epitomizes this argument that like wokeness is a religion. My objection to this argument has always been, really, when people say that, what they mean is, like, wokeness is an irrational thing that we can't explain and we can't control, and it's just sort of, like, people believe it because they're crazy. And it's like, no, people don't believe it because they're crazy. They're believing it because of incentives and historical structures, and they are wrong. But you should be able to explore that stuff. Um, so I think it's very easy to get sucked into the outrage machine on both sides. And, like, you know, ultimately, my, my response to that is, that's a really boring way to live, mm. right? Like... Like, I could probably farm a lot more clicks. I'd probably get a lot more Twitter followers if I spent more time being like, look at this outrageous thing, but also it would be really boring. uh, So I don't do it. This is like, like one of my problems is I'm I'm basically motivated by things that I find interesting and things that I don't find boring. Um, I could probably make more money if I had a higher tolerance for boring things, but I don't. So, you know, so that's that, that, that's how I reason about it. Well,
1: the question we hear over and over again in our private circles of frightened cishet friends is, uh, is the tide turning? They want to know, they want some sign from the hills. They they, they want to know, I think they want to know if they can wait it out. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I want to know from you, have we seen the worst excesses of the Great Awakening or are we just getting started?
0: So yeah, I'll say again. I, I'm 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 really only able to sort of talk about this history in the American context, and so I don't know how it maps. The internet changes everything. Uh, it globalizes culture in a way that wasn't true. That said, look, um, have you ever read the works of Tom Wolfe, the the American the the journalist, this is the gonzo journalist?
1: Bonfire of the Vanities.
0: Bonfire of the Vanities. Mao mm-hmm. uh, Maoing the Flat Catchers, uh, Radical Chic. You go read this stuff. It's like yeah, okay. He's writing in the '60s and '70s, uh, early '80s. Uh, it's describing exactly the phenomenon that's happening today. It's the same weird obsessions. It's the same strange habits of the upper class. It's all the same stuff. Um, And so in my mind, you know, at a cultural level, a lot of this stuff is not new. It just sort of comes and goes in cycles. Um, It is a set of values rising and decreasing in saliency. And so I do think it will eventually retreat. There's signs that it's retreating, at least, you know, as, as... Uh, And we'll talk about crime in a minute. You know, I think I think the rising saliency of crime contributes necessarily to people changing their perspectives away from concerns about these issues towards concerns that uh, are more successful for uh, are are, are more politically beneficial for conservatives. Um, I think you know, frankly, the the sort of gender warriors, whatever, overplayed their hand a little bit with the trans thing. Uh, They're running up against you know, there's widespread popular support for uh, uh, gay people, lesbian people that. People a little more concerned about the trans phenomenon, just um, that shows some polling. Uh, but so you know, I, on on the one hand, look, I do think I do think that this stuff goes in cycles and will come and go, and people do realistic about that. And then on the other hand, I do think the internet changes everything. I think culture propagates much more rapidly. Um, but also, you know, I values have shifted left systematically over the past 60, 70 years. Uh, and so so while I think we will step backwards from where we are, I think we'll, we'll, we'll swing back in the other direction, you know, I think the new equilibrium will probably be 10% to the left of where it was. Um, and you you debate whether or not that's good, but I do think that's how things have run historically. Maybe I'll be wrong. But that's, my, that's my dad.
2: Well, in October 2020, Tampax sent out the following tweet. Okay. Fact, not all women have periods. Also a fact, not all people with periods are women. Let's celebrate the diversity of all people who bleed. Now, it seems that Tampax were trying to increase their market share by appealing to a very niche interest group, But at the same time i think they've ended up ostracizing a much larger one can you explain what this woke capitalism is and how does it increase a corporation's bottom line
0: yeah so the way that i tend to think about this phenomenon um i've written a fair amount about this at uh city journal so of others um richard hananya has written about this uh our mutual friend gabriel rossman has written some about this in city journal um some of it is that uh, the, there's a question sociologists ask, which is basically like, if, if diversity is the good of capitalism, if what capitalism does is like produce every option available so that you, you know, that's perfect competition. If diversity is the good of capitalism, why do institutions often look the same? This is the problem of institutional isomorphism. Why institution iso-same-morphism shape? Um, and and the, the sociological school that addresses the institutionalist sociology tends to say, look, the reasons are often, um, A, often, often it's just sort of people are copying industry leaders, like, like the, uh, firms are not perfectly rational, a lot of what they do is copy what everyone else seems to be doing, so there are hurt effects, some of it is that uh, signaling participation in certain values is a precondition for social legitimacy, that, like saying, you know, you, you, it may not be that consumers want it, but you need the approval of other actors besides consumers. You need to worry about regulators, you need to worry about courts, you need to worry about high status individuals. Um, and then, third, but I think ultimately most important, is that you can have internal pressures. You know, I, I like to say that the question is is it woke labor or is it woke capital? And in my mind, and uh, based on, I think, reporting from individual firms, uh, and there's a little bit of social science to back this up, although it's, it's hard to measure. Um it sure seems like a lot of what's happened is that there's an increasing uh, and this is true over the past several decades, there's an increasing correlation between skill and social liberalism. Um I wrote a piece about this talking about what I called uh I, I, I called wokeness well, is a non pecuniary benefit. Um, that increasingly high skilled individuals want to be compensated not just in money but also in a particular set of values propagated by their firm they you know they, they they've reached the point of returns where what matters less is like the marginal added dollar rather than my company stands for this i'm getting these things at work i'm this thing is aligned with my values um and so when you're competing for those high skilled workers if that's the axis on which you have to compete you're gonna throw your consumers to the wind at least a little bit because like you need those guys you need workers as much as you need consumers in order to be profitable so i think my theory and i think you could i i can certainly be talked in different directions but my theory is that a lot of what's done what's done this is that basically uh as as my colleague um zach goldberg has, has shown um, there's, there's rising identification with these values among high status individuals that correlates with high skill, you need those workers. So you're compensating them by saying, we agree with your values. Uh, and that, you know, it's, 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 it's a grassroots phenomenon. It's from within the corporation. Uh, at least that's what seems to be the case
2: uh, I, I, i'm interested to know if there if there's an anti-woke equivalent so are there corporations out there that that say align themselves uh, against some of this this woke ideology
0: mm, by the same mechanism mostly no because they're like you know the, the the sort of equivalent on the right is much more predominant among like low-skilled workers um if you look if you look at america uh who votes for trump it's like people out of the labor force. Uh, people who dropped out of the labor force, people who low skilled, um, and this is just like less demanded workers. Um, I do think that there's a real battle in Silicon Valley over this stuff. Uh, and Silicon Valley has conflicting impulses. You know, there are the Peter Thiel's, the sort of early founders who are like pretty radical libertarians, um, in sort of an extreme university with somebody like Curtis Yarvin, who's like so libertarian he's a monarchist. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have like uh, you 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 have like contemporary progressives and. There's sort of some space between, like, the EAs, the effective altruists, and that. Um, I think that there's sort of very much a... The reason that you see more intellectual diversity in Silicon Valley is just that, like, the the, the hurting towards values is not yet resolved, as it were. Like, people have not yet resolved what direction they want to go in as a group. Um, More systematically, you know, I think... uh, if I were if, if, you know if, if, if I were to play like uh, if, if I would play like the devil's Advocate liberal I would say certainly corporations still profess certain conservative values sometimes um, although they often do it in increasingly progressive ways Corporations say we love the family we just you know we want the family to be diverse and also gay which like okay that's you know that's, that's an okay compromise um, that's fine with me uh that upsets me less than you know that doesn't upset me relative to like people who want to abolish the family um uh but on the other hand i think even those examples have shifted left relative to where they were 20 30 years ago you say that's good you can say it's happened i I think it has happened well
1: i think it's time to get into the meat and bones now before we talk about crime uh, specifically i have an idea that i've been pitching uh for uh the police department now I know that a lot of people were wanting to get rid of it and defund and reallocate and all that. How come no one talked about a subscription service, like a Netflix for cops? Like, I, like you pay, like I'll pay and you don't have to pay. And then they come to, my, to protect me and you don't have to pay. What about that? How come no one's put this forward?
0: Uh, no, there, there, there is discussion of doing this. Um, there's a neighborhood in Minneapolis that there was there's a news story a couple of days ago. A neighborhood in Minneapolis where uh, people in the neighborhood are kicking in to pay for extra security because <laughs> the MPD is not able to provide services <laughs> anymore. it's been so eviscerated by all the conflict. You need soldiers um, of
1: fortune to protect your house now.
0: Yeah, there's um, uh, gosh, I can't generate the name of the services. There, there are people who want to do this. No, um, uh, by some measures, there are more private security uh agents people people working private security in the united states and there are police officers um like we spend a lot of money on private security and the thing that happens uh basically when you have a private security arrangement um is that like like private places exclude everybody else and those places are very safe and then everything else is terrible right like like the essence the, the the height of private security in like new york is the 1980s when like every business bill every building had its own private security you had your you had your doorman you had your guy with your gun uh and the streets were terrible um and the reason for this in my view is that like public safety is a right. you know it's 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 a prior public good um it's 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 necessary for everything else to function and so when you when you sort of wave uh when when, when the state retreats from it when the state's like no this is going to be a private concern somebody else can handle this um the people who can afford private security get it, and the people who don't don't. And you could say, you know, may- maybe you want to live like that, but I, I'm fine with my tax dollars going towards everybody getting to live in peace and safety. I think that's good. Oh,
1: all
2: right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a, it's, 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 I'm, I'm, it's, it's a soft position, it's a live position, but I'll take it.
2: Now, what, what we're told from afar is that there's a crime wave in the U.S. Can you give us a more detailed picture uh, of a of a comparative crime levels in the U.S. cities over the last few years?
0: So the big picture take away is mostly there is an increase in violence. And then in some places, there's an increase in other kinds of crime, although it's a little more complicated. What do I mean by that? Relative to 2019. Um, so So let's go back even a little further. 2014. Is like the 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 trough of crime in the past. I don't. It's not 100 years. It's maybe 70 years um, between about 1960, 19 and the early 1990s. Crime is rising, rising, rising in the United States. Then starts plummeting. Why? That's a whole other conversation. 1994 to at 2014, crime declines precipitously, flattens in 2014. Um, there's sort of little increases in 2015, and it goes back down. Uh, 2019 up through 2019, it's sort of at this plateau. Um, the crime decline is over, but like we have increased. 2020, uh, the top line number is homicides increased by something like 25-30 percent in the United States. Um, that's across the country. That's you know homicides are always concentrated in big cities, but it's also in rural areas. also in small cities. Uh, there's also a concurrent increase in two other types of crimes. Um, there's an increase in shootings, which, as I like to say, a shooting is just a homicide where you miss. Uh, and there's also an increase in carjackings. There's an interesting question of why carjackings went up or uh, automotive theft more generally. The low certainty answer that I now have based upon some reporting, talking to some people, is that mostly that is actually also incidental to the increase in homicides because people are stealing cars to do drive-bys because um, the cars are less protected. There is not an increase in property crimes in 2020. Property crimes decline, I think, for the simple reason that, like, people are at home more and less out to have stuff stolen. There's some argument that basically property crimes per foot mile walked go up. Like, if you if you account for the fact that people are not home, property crimes go up. Oh, well, that's – you can have a debate about that. Um, 2021, homicide increases more. It seems like 2022, we're on track to be about level with 2021. So like in toto, we're up 30-35% relative to 2019. Violent crimes also, uh, shootings in particular, continue at their elevated level. Um, so America is a much more violent place than it was three years ago. Property crimes in some places have also gone up. In other places, they've sort of rebounded. So, like, basically everywhere, they're up over 2020, but that's probably a reopening effect because they're still down or about on par with where they were in 2019. Except that in some jurisdictions, you're seeing increases in certain kinds of theft. Um, in shoplifting in particular, you see that as a problem in like, San Francisco. Uh, that's, in my view, a much more localized problem. Um, so that's sort of like the big picture number thing. And then the, so the, the concept that I want to draw out there when we talk about this more is really I think what we saw in 2020 was an increase in uh, crimes of violence and particular uh, what would some could be thought about as gang crime, although gang is sort of a complicated label, and I think is more precisely thought about as an increase in the frequency and intensity of violent crime within the networks in which most violent crime already occurs – Um, which often overlap with, but also exceed gangs, uh, but are like all basically the same social networks. I can elaborate on all of that, but sort of like the big picture claim that I would make. Well, in a free society, what
2: would you say is the acceptable level of crime?
0: That's a great question. No, I ask this question all the time. Um, I think that it is much lower than it currently, either A is in the United States or B uh was in 2019 um i think okay so 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 i think think a couple of things thing one is that the level of violence in the united states is always going to be higher than other countries particularly other developed countries um that's just because we have 400 million guns in the united states that's not going to change uh you know i think i think we would be a meaningfully safer and also less free society if we did not have a second amendment um, I am agnostic on that. I just sort of accept that as like a background fact of American life. Uh, there are lots of guns. Uh, some of those guns get into the hands of violent people. When they get in fights, uh, there are more deaths. That's what happens. Um, it's, 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 it's not good, but it's a fairly hard situation to change. Um, on the other hand, I do think that there are lots of, for lack of a better term, uh, we, we, we leave a lot of crime reduction possibility on the table um america what, what, what i like to say is that um we talk about america having the highest incarceration rate of any country on earth uh and that's probably not right because the chinese and russians are probably lying <laughs> but let's accept it as true the way that i think about this is that there are two kinds of countries there are countries with a low innate propensity to violence and a low and a high level of state capacity so like um many european countries Uh, all the background factors, whether it be, like, uh, sources of intergroup strife, or whether it be, like, levels of ancestral personality disorder, gangs, number of guns, whatever. Um all those factors relatively low, and also they're really high state capacity. Like They have lots of cops, uh, and so they don't need to incarcerate a lot of people. Um, and then you have countries with a high level of background propensity to violence, and also low state capacity. So, like, Honduras has a much higher homicide rate than the United States. Like, Honduras' incarceration rate ideally would be much higher than it currently is. It's not a success that Honduras has a lower incarceration rate than the United States. And then the U.S. is this very weird thing that is neither A nor B. We have both a high underlying propensity to violence and also high relative state capacity, right? Um so like so like notwithstanding arguments to the contrary, I think it is almost certainly correct that a big part of the crime decline, you can debate about the percentage, a big part of the crime decline is driven by incapacitate the incapacitative effects of just putting a lot of people in prison. Um but there are like gains to be led to there, there's still possible gains there. There's still people that we could put in prison more efficiently. And the way that we know this is that, like, only half of homicides are cleared, which means that there's some number of murderers out there who probably should be in prison who aren't. Um, we could spend a lot more on cops. The U.S. spends less on cops' percentage of GDP, I believe, as percentage of GDP, than most European countries. We spend, like, 3% of all government, less than 3% of all government spending goes towards cops.
1: So what you're saying is fund the police?
0: Fund the police, yeah. Um, so point being, like, basically, and then, the, you know, there, there were lots of different arguments I can make here. Uh, but the the big synthetic point is, like, uh, America's always going to have a relatively high level of violence for, for reasons that are all, I think, beyond policy's control. But there are lots of policy levers that we can pull that we have not fully pulled that would lower it without substantially imperiling uh liberty in the american tradition.
1: So just to to return to uh the, the your previous answer for a second uh, breaking down the big picture 25% seems like a lot of uh, in terms of increase that seems like uh, the kind of increase where uh, I would notice it uh, and and be and be outraged by it. So what what are some of the drivers and and uh, uh, it's just a shocking jump. that's all.
0: so i am I am an adherent of uh, what what some criminologists call social control theory, which is that basically when when we ask the question, why does crime happen? um some people like to tell stories about like uh, uh, what's called strain theory. There's a idea that like people commit crime because they have an idealized vision of how life should be, and then they act out when their life isn't like that. Um, a bunch of other theories i tend to think in terms of in language social control theory which is uh social control theorists we don't think why does crime happen we think why doesn't crime happen what are the things that stop crime from happening and what is the level of those things what are the things exercising social control and you can tell a story in 2020 about a systematic decline over the entire year in the institutions of social control so first thing early 2020 uh, lockdowns start happening um there's a dramatic reduction in the capacity for social control, uh, both in the formal criminal justice system. Um, we let lots of people out of jail. We let lots of people out of prison. The courts basically shut down. If like deterrence is driven by swiftness and certainty, things get a lot less swift and a lot less certain there being consequences for you committing crimes. Um, also informal mechanisms or, you know, other, other institutions, uh, closing schools means that more kids are out on the street, like to commit crime in me uh, people not being in jobs means more crime um, simply because if you have a place you have to be during the day, you're not out committing crime. Um, those So that sort of ratcheting back, I think, contributes to an initial th- – there's, there's like a, a somewhat of an increase over trend in homicides in April and May of 2020. Um, but it's worth underscoring that that stuff happens in other countries and they did not experience the same scale increase in homicide. Uh The last week of May 2020 is when homicide starts to take off in the United States like a rocket. Um, You pick your measure, it's there in the data. Uh, And there's a very simple reason for that, which is the murder of George Floyd and ensuing protests and riots. In every data set that I've looked at, that is the worst week for burglary on record, where burglary means uh, breaking into something and stealing stuff, so like people smashing windows and stealing stuff out of stores. That means a short-run drain on public safety capacity because, like, all cops could do was respond to mass rioting. Uh, But it also means a long-run reduction in policing's capacity because, you know, there was a nationwide movement to say, we want to get rid of the police.
1: Global movement, in fact. Not just national,
0: global. A global movement. Public leaders committed themselves to the idea that policing is bad, policing is racist. We need fewer cops. Cops need to do less. Uh, And as a result, cops did less. so i tend to think that you know while while COVID capacity is part of the story it is also almost certainly the case that there's been a systematic reduction in uh levels of policing in many large cities just the number of cops employed people retire people left for smaller jurisdictions uh cops willingness to police proactively people's trust in the police all of the things and you know the, the the reality is the policing is sort of the most effective most direct lever we have for reducing violence for and producing crime um and so you know i think i against that backdrop uh the people who were already prone to committing crime particularly violent crime said okay we're gonna step up our game we're gonna like the cops are busy me and that guy down the street have had a beef for two years i'm gonna go take care of it um I think we continue to see the reverberation of that. This is a uh, film called Ping-Pong Murders. Um, once, once you start a cycle, uh, the cycle keeps going. It's, it's hard to get it to burn out without the reapplication of external control. Um, and look, uh, the, the, the system still is not operating perfectly. Many prisons uh, – sorry, many courts are still uh, operating below capacity. Some courts are still not fully open. Uh, by the best estimates, jail population is still about 80% of where they were in February of 2020. Like the system is still not running where it needs to be running in order to get the situation under control so it's going to continue to burn until we do
1: well i have some questions on on uh some of the the, the rights and george floyd a bit later but first twitter has been pushing me a lot of videos involving shoplifting now i was interested to hear uh, you say that it was it's a specific case and i want you to talk about that uh because obviously these aren't labeled so it, it just makes it look like it's happening everywhere uh, but this is really brazen stuff people walking in taking what they want, often with security guards watching on, people just sort of standing around filming. Uh, now, I know I'm being manipulated by the algorithm here, uh, obviously being shown these things, but has there been a significant increase in this type of crime, uh, which you've already partly answered, but g- give us an idea of, of, of what's going on here.
0: Yeah. So, there. Are, I mean, there are a couple of different things that are going on there. Um, I think you have the right instinct to say, let me be skeptical of somebody showing me a, a freaky video. That's, that's you know, that's scary, but, like, it doesn't necessarily tell you anything about the incidents, um, the, the, the frequency with which that's happening, which doesn't mean, you know, you're wrong, and I think there are people who go, well, that's just a video, and then dismisses an issue or they use, like, very tenuous analysis. Um, the people who go, it's, you know, Walmart and CBS are fabricating this are uh, <laughs> wrong. Um, so here's what I... I the, mm, the big picture thing is that once you get outside of what are called the index crimes, the seven major crimes the FBI has been tracking since the 1930s, the data get a lot less reliable. Um, and even those, they're actually not that reliable. Like we've been counting arson since the 1930s, and so nobody has any idea how many arsons happen every year. It's just impossible to tell. Um, so what you can say from the shoplifting data is the following thing: one is that generally there's been an increase in the number of shoplifting incidents reported to the FBI since, like, 2015. There's been, particularly in big cities. I wrote a piece about this for the dispatch. Um, It's important to note that shoplifting and burglary are different things and how things get classified. So, like, if I walk in and just, like, take something and walk away, that's shoplifting. Um, If I, like, smash and grab, that's a burglary. Um, And we've seen burglary at national levels remain relatively low. So if there is a shoplifting problem, it's probably people taking... Uh, it's probably people straight taking merchandise rather than those sort of big flashy videos. Um, you can say in particular jurisdictions and where I've really looked at San Francisco that there has been a measured increase in shoplifting as a phenomenon. Uh, so, like, like, if you just go look in the San Francisco Police Department's data, it's right there. Like, there's, 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 a, lot, there's a dramatic increase in shoplifting over the past several months uh, and also a larger increase since about 2015 i'm sort of offering a lot of caveats because i just think that there's a lot that we don't know here the most frustrating part of this story is that like the people who do know are the big chains that are claiming that they have a problem and they won't release what's called shrinkage data which is just like how much inventory have you lost due to what like they know that and they don't make those data public um Do I believe that there has been an increase in shoplifting absolutely in some jurisdictions, uh, probably to some extent nationwide or certainly in big cities nationwide, not everywhere, not in the same way that there's been an increase in homicide and violence. Uh, And I think it is hard to determine why there's been an increase. Uh, We can make educated guesses but I suspect that a lot of it is sort of very local, a very local story, which is still an important story, but local stories rather than a national trend story.
2: Can you elaborate on the difference between crime and disorder? Uh, and are they related? Does disorder lead to crime?
0: Gosh, that's, uh, that's like a 50-year debate. Um, yeah, so, so, you know, I mean, uh, uh, just sort of in raw definitions, a crime is a case where somebody violates the law. Um, and then more synthetically, it's it's a case where somebody hurts you or takes your stuff. Uh, there are there lots of other things, but those are sort of the, the offenses that we most actively track are cases where violent crimes, somebody hurts somebody, or property crimes, somebody takes their stuff. Um, you know, there are lots of other things that are crimes, like white collar crimes or crimes, but we pay less attention to those for whatever reason. Um, disorder is behavior, conduct, uh, or things which are which can be crimes, but are sort of, are not necessarily, they're they're imperfectly overlapping the Venn diagram. Um, Which contributes to a sense of uh, clutter, unease, uh, a lack of social control in a particular environment, graffiti is disorder, public homelessness, public urination, public intoxication. These are all disorder. Um, Does disorder contribute to crime? The answer is it depends on how you define it and it depends on who you ask. Uh there are lots of different theories as to what could possibly connect these two things. We know that there's some pretty strong evidence uh, if you clean up vacant lots, if you green public spaces, uh, crime goes down in those areas, measured crime goes down in those areas. Um, if you If you clear homeless encampments, there's some evidence that reduces crime uh on the other hand the question becomes like what's the mechanism there one argument is that it's about deterring the minority of the population like small subset of the population that commits serious crimes giving the sense that this is not an area where they can offend there's another argument that's about what's called collective efficacy this idea of like the community's sense of ownership over itself gets stronger and so crime goes down um i think that a lot of these theories sort of end up overlapping what i would say is that Two things one is that there probably is a disorder crime relationship although it's not the only thing that causes crime it's probably an important contributor but well, the thing too is that often this argument is like missing the point because people don't like disorder because they don't like disorder um i made this argument about san francisco san francisco actually is interesting as a city it has not really experienced the same scale of homicide increase that lots of other cities have um and homicide by the way is you know pe- people are like, well they're just not getting reported, but, like. Homicide is the crime that gets reported because there's usually a dead body. They
1: say this in the wire. That that's the thing in the wire. Yeah. Is we can't have bodies. Anything but bodies. You know. Yeah.
0: Right. You know, uh, in in San Francisco, they just kicked out a very progressive district attorney, Chesa Boudin. And my argument is the reason that they did that was not because of the increase in crime. It was because people hate public disorder. And Chesa Boudin said that's not my job to deal with that people urinating on the street, people ODing on the street, uh, mass public homelessness encampments, uh, graffiti uh feces in the street all of these things even if they don't necessarily drive crime severely reduce quality of life in cities and people don't like that mm. um, and you can say i don't want the government to deal with that but that's not a good way to get reelected. uh there's a there's there's a there's a study that i like um this guy in west scogan at northwestern and in the 90s he would go to these chicago police community meetings um and the thing that people were worried about at those meetings was not You know, somebody, I mean, they were worried about people getting shot, but the most common complaints were there's graffiti on my street, there's a homeless drunk sitting on my stoop, can you get him off? Like, people care about disorder. Because disorder makes their lives worse, and it is, you know, it, it is it is merited to use the criminal justice system to reduce the incidence of disorder, independent of its effect on crime.
1: But why don't people make more of the fact that, let's be charitable and say, the well-meaning people who are greenlighting the disorder in these major cities uh, would never in their lives live anywhere near it. Say, saying saying a certain level of human waste, uh, overdoses, or mass shoplifting, or whatever, is just uh, something we have to put up with. It's it's very easy when you live in a, in a lovely, quiet neighborhood, uh, don't you think? I mean, I, oh, this is a cheap shot, and she's not by no means is she an elected official, but I think of uh, Alyssa Milano uh, in this instance, uh, you know, and it's a very cheap shot. But still, she's the perfect example of someone who says, abolish, like, you know, it's crazy, get rid of it, and then she gets broken into or whatever, and she's like, oh, my God, where are the cops?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, so, so I think that this is true to some extent. There's certainly an argument that... Uh, you know, if if it, when when you went to Minneapolis and when they did polling in Minneapolis in July of twenty twenty, um it was a majority of white respondents who said that we should defund the police and a majority of black respondents who said that we shouldn't. Um that like the people who you know, when when, when you go and do polling um Gallup for several years did what they called uh uh, fri- fragile communities where they went to like the most disadvantaged communities in the United States and they asked them a wide variety of questions. And in these fragile communities, black and white, 70, 80% of the population said, We want more cops. We need more cops in our neighborhood. Um, and then, so, you know, on, on, on the one hand, yeah, this, this you know, d- defund is a radical chic position. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an abstract, it's because you're not connected to the reality of how crime operates. Um, my colleague, Ralph Mangual, his book is out. The day that we are recording this, his new book is out, and one of the points that he makes in this book over and over again is like, crime is highly concentrated. Crime is highly concentrated in place, it's highly concentrated in people. Most people will go their lives without experiencing serious violent crime. Uh, the People who are most affected by it are disproportionately, overwhelmingly affected by it. That said, look, I do think that there's this attitude among, uh, I call them civil libertarians, people who do live in the city, who are just like, part of living in New York is just accepting the grunge. And if you can't do that you're weak. I mean, you're, 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 you're terrible. Um, I think about the the, the humorist David Sedaris tells a story. He's in, he's in France in a, in a French language class. Um, and he's talking to a Japanese, uh, another student in the class is Japanese. He and he and another American are talking to another student who's Japanese. And they observe how, how odd it is that in Japan, they have um, bending machines just out there on the, on the streets. And the guy goes, why? And it's like, well, if you had them in america people would break and destroy them and the japanese guy goes why would they do that and he's like i don't know it's something to do um like like americans just tolerate a much higher background level of chaos and disorder than is true in other in many other developed countries and you can say that's to some extent cultural but it's also a policy choice uh levels of unha- sheltered homelessness are entirely a policy choice we uh the, uh new york city And San Francisco have approximately the same number of homeless people. The overwhelming percentage of New York City's homeless people are sheltered. The overwhelming percentage of people in San Francisco are not sheltered. And the difference is like mostly uh, how you prioritize A, building shelter, and B, making people go into shelter. Um, that's a policy choice. Dis- you know, cleaning graffiti is a policy choice. Uh, penalizing people for public intoxication is a policy choice. So, like, we could do much more. We don't actually have to live like that.
1: Well, in Japan, you can. It's not a tit for tat, but but just because you brought it up, you can leave your mobile phone on the table when you go to the bathroom at a, at a restaurant when you're out. That's what everyone does. They yeah. leave that. They leave it on there, and they just walk away. And wallets and stuff. They just leave this stuff, and then they go go and come back. If I did that, or and I, lo- I'm I'm all about um, the U.S. of A. But if I did that in some places in America, it would be gone probably before my butt my butt got off the seat. <laughs> You know it?
0: Yep, yep. <laughs> that's, no, that's, that, that's absolutely, and, well, and, and you know, on the one hand, this is a cultural difference, um, but I think to some extent that's, you know, to, to, to use the term of orientalizing, it's like, well, the Japanese are just much more orderly than us, and it's, like, maybe kind of, sort of, a little bit, but, like, also, really, you can just, if it, there, there, there are levers that you can choose to pull to make life more unpleasant for people who behave in antisocial ways, and America is this, like, this, like, uh, sort of, particular brand of civil left libertarianism that like freedom means being surrounded by garbage and i don't think that's what freedom means like i don't think i'm more free because somebody's peeing on my lawn <laughs> is
2: it is it maybe uh giving people the right to be assholes you know like like it's my god given right to be an asshole if i want to you know
0: you know i to to, to some extent and you know my my, my response is like uh, that's not really what freedom means in the it, even in the English tradition in the, in the Anglo-American tradition. No, there's um uh, Michael Michael Schellenberger who uh I don't know if you guys have yes if your listeners know him um but I assume so. Uh in in um in San Francisco he has this this uh, anecdote that stuck with me. He talks to a woman from the ACLU and he's like my neighbor had a had a mentally Ill homeless man like wander onto her yard and start freaking out. Do you believe that the cops shouldn't be able to arrest him? No. Okay. Do you believe that like he should be able to be compelled into treatment? No. So you can't stop him from behaving this way, and also you can't help him. So like freedom for this, like why? Because of his liberty, right? He's like his 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 liberty consists in being allowed to like have a mentally ill meltdown on somebody else's yard. Like that's not. That person is not free that person is enslaved by his mental illness and the fact that you think that freedom consists in letting him stay that way rather than giving him the help that he needs is to be crazy Uh, but and 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 this is i think the basic error is like look other things uh there are there, there are real threats to individuals freedom in things other than uh coercion and and i think i think the american tradition has long recognized that and there's sort of a very recent strain of what i might call left libertarianism that disagrees with it uh but it's 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 out of step with how we thought about freedom in again the anglo american tradition for for centuries
1: but but this level of disorder and and uh, you know crime whatever that we're being asked to accept is is so uh, it's it just Makes the blood boil because I I know That I'm going to out us as all being, you know, in the laptop class. But if any of the stuff we're talking about happened to us, like Ricky, if a guy came into your house and just took it, took your stuff, and just stared at you in the eyes, and I don't know, pissed on the way out or something, <laughs> or, or someone just, stu- you know, just did any of the stuff we're talking about. You're, you're, you're the chemist, and you're buying stuff, and someone just steals all the stuff you're going to buy, or whatever. <laughs> you would, you would never stop talking about it, and it would ruin your life
2: for a while. <laughs> you know. I, I would so definitely we, bring it up. At parties a lot,
1: but why? Why are people being asked to accept this? This is such an outrage.
0: Yeah, no, um, there's 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 evidence. I think from the Netherlands, uh, somebody somebody put together a big index of uh uh, people who've been criminally victimized, and there are there are durable effects on healthcare spending, how much how much they spend on healthcare, um, on on wage earning, they make less money. Uh, they they just worse off for years afterwards after they're victimized by serious crimes. Um, it's, it's like, like crime is very, is, is awful. You know, look, I think that much of the contemporary and policy environment, uh, and the contemporary cultural discussion around crime is fruit of the miracle of the crime decline. Um, if you go back to the early 1990s, you talk about, uh, uh Bill Bennett and John Julio and, um... Uh, John Walters wrote a book called Body Count, in which they argue that there's this coming wave of super predators, quote-unquote. Um, and they're really kind of right, but that's neither here nor there. Um, they, 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 there's, like, we're, we're about to, like, crime is about to get even worse. Everything's going to get even more terrible. Crime's been rising since the 60s. Like, the cities are going to be completely destroyed. Um, and instead, what happens is that crime enters uh, 10, 20-year dramatic decline. Like, if you are, if you are, I was born in 1994, which is the peak of violent crime. If you are my age, you have no memory of how bad cities were in the 1980s. If you are under the age of 40, you have real, no, no real meaningful memory of how bad cities were in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, what crack was like, of what, uh, I, I, I like to think about those. Um, my, my, my dad used to have, my father used to have one of those steering wheel locks that he would put on the car. Oh yeah. I remember those. Those the anymore. red, the, the red lock. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but you just don't need those anymore. Um, and that's because of the miracle of the crime. So like, like we live in this era, Americans in particular, although I think in other countries, but Americans in particular live in this era of relative peace and stability. And they have no memory of how bad things were within like the lifetimes of living people. Um, and so when they talk about crime and they talk about disorder, they don't really understand how good they have it because they don't understand that. They sort of take it for granted uh i think once you start to study the history of the rise and fall of violent crime in the united states it becomes apparent how bad you know pe- people talk about um people talk about the punitivity of the of of uh, federal drug laws and the federal war on drugs um and they go well it's really a, a a war on black people but they don't talk about the, the history of black leaders and you know quote unquote respectable black community members agitating the most aggressively for this stuff because of what crack cocaine did to their communities, because of what violent predators did to their communities. It was terrible. Um, so we won't remember how bad this stuff got. And and that is, I think that is I think at the root of the sort of blasé attitude about crime it's like they just don't know how bad it can be
1: yes there seems to be a bit of a, a nostalgic uh, resurgence of the taxi driver in new york uh, going on right now uh, I, I i have a question uh we are jumping around a little bit but, but, but a few big things to cover so I, I i mentioned uh earlier george floyd since this event has informed the global view of the state of the u.s of u.s policing and crime I have a question uh, about George Floyd uh, that that would have been unthinkable in 2020 because I know that even mentioning him at all was enough to uh, – uh, there was a radio announcer that uh, mentioned him here uh, in not a positive light and he was fired like immediately and, and you know, so that was just you – know, we're, we're a world away, you know. Anyway, this, his death was tragic and, and unnecessary, but hasn't uh, his unofficial sort of sainthood driven by high emotion – taken us further from solving any of the problems that saw the event take place?
0: Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I think uh, my, my stated approach to all of this is that I, I, I try not to get sucked into the particulars of cases. Um, you know, I, I, I try to do the thing that I encourage liberals to do all the time, which is just like, you know, this is a jury of peers and they're responsible for adjudicating the facts. Um, and I believe in the legitimacy of the criminal justice system. So I, I, I let that process work. I do think in general, uh, absolutely sort of what I would call reasonable reform is stalled. You know, one of the most, one of the most frustrating, galling things to me is that, like, look, there are actually proven methods for reducing police, uh, like, like unnecessary unjustified police shootings. Um, I mean, so, so a couple of things. A, every single cop I've talked to, and i talked to a fair number of cops professionally, every single cop I've talked to looks at what Derek Chauvin did and said, that's insane. Like, that's absolutely not what he should have done in that situation. It is bananas that he behaved that way, that goes against all the training he received. Um, so, you know, A, that stuff is already out there. B, we were and are we're already making progress by at least sub-measures uh, in reducing the number of killings of unarmed individuals by the police, which is like a lot of more goal in my mind. Um, the optimal number of police-civilian shootings is not zero, but it's probably would be nice if we could get, it's about 1,000 to 1,500 a year, it would be nice if we could get that number down, particularly if reducing the number of unjustified incidents. Um, and then thing C is that like there are tactics that there there are things that we can do that work to reduce that. Um, after s- like a decade of empirical debate, we're now pretty sure that body worn cameras work. We're pretty sure that certain kinds of use of force training work. We're pretty sure what's called restore uh, not restorative justice um, uh, uh, procedural justice training works to increase people's respect for the police and a sense of fairness uh, and uh, community engagement. Like. There are things that we can fund that everybody can agree on uh, that are not controversial, that don't need to be a source of rancor, and that will have real positive impacts on people's lives. But we're not going to do that. Um, instead, we're going to have stupid political fights about, like, should we defund the police? Um, to their, I don't want to say credit, but I guess belated benefit, uh, the Democratic Party has sought to distance itself from the defund the police movement. Um, I actually, I, I testified in front of Congress uh, during a hearing, the basic goal of which the the House Democrats were parading a bunch of people in front of Congress to say, yes, we think police are good because um, they really want to distance themselves from defund because that's electoral poison. But they're not going to get anywhere on substantive reform because uh, they are captured by a minority in their party that still thinks this insane stuff about policing and is motivated by it. Um, so, no, I, I mean, I think it's, it, is, it is very frustrating to me. Uh, reform is often boring. Um, It's like like it's doing small things that have small positive impacts, but it's way more efficacious, and it really does help in a way that, like, these grandiose revolutionary visions just don't.
1: Well, we saw the vision, yeah, it, it, because I became in, enthralled by, and now I know it's a specific thing, but it, it at the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone uh, or CHOP or CHAZ, Uh, that sprung up in seattle a police free zone that's uh sprung up out of these protests there was no official leadership there were demands like reduce police funding by 50 percent redistribute funds to community efforts restorative justice free public housing free college of course Uh, uh, along with community gardens and arts and crafts there were murders sexual assaults and everything in between it was it was the closest to robocop as i'd seen anything um Uh, so what, what did, did you make of Chaz at the time? Because to, uh, and to me, it looked like that this was the most spectacular advertisement for the police department.
0: (laughs) I think that's right. Um, and when they eventually reestablished order, uh, that was sort of the, you know, I, the, 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 the thing that I think about is Jenny Durkin, the, the mayor of Seattle basically saying, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, you know, they're peaceful protesters. This is like the summer of love in Seattle and um, and this to me speaks to the american left's fetishization of protest um this idea that like fundamentally you know anti like standing up to the man is always good it's they're always on the side of justice there's something beautiful and liberate like revolutionary about it um and instead i think basically uh, exactly what happened when you when you get rid of law and order happens um that there was violence, that there was disorder, that the whole thing sort of devolved into chaos, uh, and that's totally unsurprising to me. You know, look uh, to be a to be a contemporary progressive means to sort of be willing to embrace the state when it is in a maternal role, when it is providing welfare and transfer services, and to totally oppose it when it is in what some call a paternal role, when it is enforcing order in the law. Um, and it's like, look, you need you need both. Uh, it is crazy to me to believe that disorder is sort of this intrinsically good beautiful thing when it's not And i think that's what we saw with Chaz, and what we saw with sort of um the scale to which protest that protests riots were allowed to reach in some places uh was this moment of like we believe you know people in positions of power who are truly committed to the dogma acting on the dogma and then seeing what happened when that was allowed to take fruit
2: well, we've seen that the crimes of people involved in these riots uh, it seems quite destructive and dangerous and and violent. But uh, we saw reporting that said many of these people were released with with basically no charge. Has this sort of thing always been happening? Like like you know, serious crimes being being let off, or are we now just kind of is it being amplified by social media?
0: Um. It varies pretty significantly depending on the jurisdiction. Um, I mean, look, the you know, uh, local prosecutors will often opt to not prosecute crimes at scale because they don't have the manpower, the resources. That's a long-standing thing. Many states are engaging in reforms to their bail system. Some of which I think are good. Moving away from cash bail to a more rational system that prioritizes public safety is to me smart because I would rather that the rich, dangerous criminal be kept in and the poor, non-dangerous criminal be let out. Those things said, look, there's a there's a movement in the United States, the quote unquote progressive prosecutor movement, uh, the purpose of which is to leverage. So in 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 America, progressive prosecutors have what is called prosecutorial discretion; they can decline to prosecute any case. Um, That's not true in many European countries. It's true in the United States. Um, And what progressive prosecutors do is they take advantage of prosecutorial discretion to waive, to effectively nullify. Criminalization of whole categories of offenses. Um, they'll say, I'm just not going to prosecute marijuana offenses anymore, which effectively renders marijuana offending legal. Uh, it renders marijuana legal. Um, you can say you like that. You can say you dislike that. Uh, I think that what you, you saw in some of those riot cases, what you continue to see, which, you, well, which you in New York State has to do with the law in New York State, bail reform. Um, but what you see across the country, what you've seen in Chicago, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Los Angeles, is often high-profile cases where the DA's office is not asking for bail. Uh, Chester Burdine, the San Francisco district attorney, was not prosecuting drug trafficking cases any longer because many of the drug traffickers were illegally residents He didn't want them to get <laughs> deported. Um, this is the sort of thing that progressive prosecution sometimes does. Uh, so I think, I think there has been a shift in the past 10 years towards that model in many big cities as a, as a deliberate effort to take advantage of an office with a great deal of power, the result of which is, uh, yeah, you get these like crazy edge cases in a way that you didn't have 10 years ago.
2: So by way
1: of sort of wrapping up, we've covered so much ground here, Charles. I I, I feel like that you've said all this great reasonable stuff. You've given us an idea of the picture of crime, given us the, you know, uh, 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 the the ways forward in many ways. But it feels to me like there's this there's this rhetorical trick being pulled on us all, like 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 all the stuff that you're saying should be should be, you know, to use that term is sounds like common sense mostly, and it feels like we're going we go through these cycles where everyone has has either forgot willfully or not forgotten that these things, and we're in this moment now, and I just want to know what we can do to shock everyone out of uh, of I hate to swear, but putting up with this bullshit <laughs> that we're, we're being told you know
0: yeah you know i think i think at least as regards crime the good thing is that people are highly responsive to changes in the crime rate um the, the example i'd like to pull out is that if you go look at public support for the death penalty in the united states it perfectly tracks the violent crime rate um as the violent crime rate goes up people support the death penalty more and as it goes down people support the death penalty less people are highly responsive to changes They're, they they over index they are you know, even pe- people will, if you pull people, they will say, crime is up in my community even when crime is down. They're very concerned about it. Um, and there are costs and benefits to that. But in this case, a benefit is that if you can show people the reality that crime has become a more serious issue in the United States than it was three years ago, they will respond to it. You can trust them to be responsive to that. Um, even sort of, you know, I think there's a a 10% sort of fringe at the left will say the crazy things that we've been talking about. But I think there are lots of reasonable people on the left will say, I want reform. I want fairness. I want equality. But I also want safety. I also want to not have to worry about my kid walking to school. I want serious offenders to go to prison and non-serious offenders to maybe get a second chance, which I think are reasonable things to want. Um, so I think that raising the salience of the issue talking about what factually is happening will at least in the case of crime have a meaningful impact and it's already having a meaningful impact it's already you know eric adams victory in new york city um so yeah, the city of seattle we're talking about Chap and Chaz, but the city of seattle just elected a republican city attorney for the first time in decades uh and they're very committed to using what they doing what they can in the office to control crime to control petty crime um so you know, I think I think people are paying attention. I think that at least in the area of crime, we are in the process of of a, of a of going in the right direction.
2: Well, uh, we, we are coming towards the end of our interview here now. Uh, we've got a couple of short questions left. Uh, now, y- you are daily wading into controversial waters and trying to sort through some of the same nonsense that that, that we are. Uh, do you have any any advice for our listeners, uh, people who might be afraid to speak out against this sort of stuff?
0: Hey. You know, as I said at the as I said at the start of the episode, not everybody has to think about politics all the time. It's okay. Um, well, you don't you don't have to do it. It'll be all right. But be if you do, you know, my my public rhetorical stance is always to try to be um, as plainly fact based as possible to present evidence, present numbers, to present hard facts. Um, and I think that that cuts through. You know, I think the most important thing to remember, particularly when you're arguing on social media, which why would you argue on social media? But if you're doing it. Um, is that you are speaking to an audience other than your interlocutor. You know, even, even if you're arguing with somebody crazy, you, the person you're trying to convince is not necessarily the crazy person. It's everybody who's reading you arguing with the crazy person. Once you realize, like, the audience to whom you're speaking is not just the other person, then you start to think about what is the... You, you start to realize that there's value in making arguments uh, over and above, like, convincing the most hardline person on the other side
1: just want to thank you for being so generous with your time uh, charles we just have one the final question we ask all our guests is we'd like to know what you're reading right now
0: uh what am i reading right now um i just finished tyler cowan's new book on talent because we're hopefully interviewing him on the podcast oh wow soon. fantastic um yeah we're looking forward to that so i'm actually now in the middle of reading uh about a 10 year old book on marijuana legalization um, which i believe is marijuana legalization what everyone needs to know um i mean so it's, it's a little bit out of date but it's really the most uh comprehensive summary of the stakes and complexities of marijuana legalization that i've read so i'm really enjoying it
2: that's excellent we always like to uh find out what 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 our guests uh, our guests are reading uh if people want to want to find you obviously they can they can check out the podcast but uh are you on social media
0: yeah um they can always they, they can and should listen podcast it's called institutionalized you can find it on all streaming platforms i'm on twitter at charles f lehman l-e-h-m-a-n um you can also read my stuff uh i'm on the manhattan institute's website and also at our in-house Publications, city journal that's city-journal.org i write there regularly and also in a variety of outlets so you know you'll see me around
2: great well we'll definitely uh post some links in our show notes so uh, people can find you
0: fantastic
1: thanks charles yeah thank you guys